Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Greetings, downtownians. Good to have you with us. Welcome in. Downtown, the podcast, episode number 211. Rich Kimball, Kerry Haskell, here thanks to our friends at Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Well, coming up this week, we've got a couple of fine conversation conversations for you. Would help if I could say that word. Uh, coming up in the second half, we'll talk with Irish actor Richie Stevens. You've seen him in Blue Bloods, NCIS, Days of Our Lives, Major Crimes, and more. He's usually either a criminal or a cop. But he knows that territory pretty well because he had quite a ride as a, well, as a bad dude, a drug dealer, gangster. And then cleaned up his life, went through recovery and turned things around. And he's written all about it in a new book that we'll talk about, The Gangster's Guide to Sobriety, Richie Stevens, in the second half of the program. Up first, though, a guy who has been making music for more than six decades now. 1960, at the age of 16, he hit number one on the Billboard charts with Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini. <laughs> that that might have been the end of the line. For some singers, when you do a novelty song like that, it was big. But there were certainly people that didn't like that song. But Brian Hyland was made of sterner stuff and had much more talent than that. He's gone on to have quite a successful recording career with hits along the way, like Gypsy Woman, great cover of Curtis Mayfield's song in 1970, The Joker Went Wild, Sealed with a Kiss, and many, many more. And he's still out to sounding great and making music today. We had a chance to talk about all of it with Brian Hyland. You're on downtown. Let's start at the beginning. You were born uh, in in New York in Queens at a time when the New York City was really the capital of the popular music industry in America. Yes, uh, it was pretty much uh, the the expansion out to the West Coast was like a couple of years into the future at that time. And as a young guy, you, you learned to play instruments. So you started doing some singing and. What were you, about 13 or 14 when you formed the Delphi's? Uh, yeah, somewhere somewhere <laughs> around there. It was an influence uh, from, uh, in New York City, doo-wop groups were the thing, and everybody wanted to be in a doo-wop group. In my high school, there was a lot of uh, different doo-wop groups, and that was just the thing. So you got to record a demo, but you, you didn't get a record deal, but... Uh, you drew the attention uh, somehow of the people at Cap Records. How did that happen? Well, uh, the demo, we went over to uh, the Brill Building with that. You know, we didn't know we where to go or we just uh, would knock on doors. <laughs> and um, so uh, for about six months or so, I was working with this arranger up in the Brill Building uh, in Sammy Kay's office. And then I, I cut a demo for a publishing for their publishing company, they took the demo around to get hit, you know, to get somebody to record it. Eventually, uh, they brought it over to Cap Records, and Cap Records liked the demo, and they said, "Who's singing on that?" And they said, "That's Brian Hyland. He's our office boy." <laughs> <laughs> so then uh, they said, "Yeah, well, we like his voice, and they wanted to record that as a master recording, which we did, and that was my first record." Was that Rosemary? And, correct. That was uh, Rosemary. Then, uh, I guess a couple of months later, they uh, we they said, "Oh, let's do another one." And we had the B side, 
And then at the last minute, I got a phone call and they said, we found this really cool song. And I, they were, I went over to Manhattan and uh, listened to it. And the song was Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini. And that worked out pretty well. It's 16 years old. You're on the top of the charts. Uh, you're on TV doing uh, doing Dick Clark, American Bandstand, and you're everywhere. How do you adjust to going from uh, you know, a regular uh, high school student in New York to all of a sudden being the toast of the music world? Well, it was uh, the, the people in the music business, because I had a number one record, they treated me like I'd been in the business for years. And... Uh, so I guess in that way, it made it easy for me. Now, you ended up, uh, if I remember the story right, changing high schools after that, going to a school for the arts. And uh, did I read along the way that one of your classmates was Patty Duke? That's correct. Yeah, Patty Duke. And also Jay Trainer from Jay and the Oh, Martin. yeah. He was, uh, he was there. And I think at, at some point or another, Gregory Hines was there. And uh, there was a lot of different people going in and out of there. And it was... Uh, it was nice. It was a nice experience. And then uh, you went over to ABC Paramount and, and did some really terrific records with them. Uh, top 20 hit with uh, Let Me Belong to You and then another monster hit in 1962 with Sealed with a Kiss. That's correct. Uh, I I did the, uh, those were the recording sessions I did with uh, Gary Geld and Pete Udell as the producers and they were also the writers starting off with Let Me Belong to You. And then in 1962, right around this time, uh, Feel the Kiss came out and uh, it took off. Now, were you doing any writing at that time or, or just focusing on singing the songs they brought to you? No, I wasn't writing at all at that at that point in time, no. But, uh, you know, it was uh, uh, until the, when the Beatles started having a big success, everybody thought, well, maybe I can write songs too, you know, because they did, they wrote, mm. played on the session. They did everything. And that, that was like an innovation, except for Buddy Holly and the Crickets. Uh, uh, anyway, so that was, uh, I started writing later on. And I, I think I read along the way, like so many, uh, you, you were influenced uh, by Elvis when you first saw him on television. It w was your dad, too, that was pretty impressed with him. That's correct. Yeah, uh, I uh, we were just watching this uh, show on um, was I don't I can't remember what the season it was or anything, but we were watching it, and all of a sudden they said, "And here's the new uh, sensation," and they and they and Elvis came on, and my dad after he was uh, you know doing a couple of tunes, my dad said, "This guy's great," <laughs> and uh, it impressed me, and I thought, "Yeah, he is." And uh, and I liked the, the sound of the uh, his band and, and the whole uh, thing. It was fantastic. Well, in those days, of course, uh, the way to get seen by fans was to go on these package tours, and you ended up on uh, a big one, one of the Dick Clark caravans along the way. And there's a remarkable story I know you've, you've told before. You had been in Wichita, and I believe you traveled all night long to get to Dallas on November 22nd, 1963, and you ended up actually seeing President Kennedy's motorcade. Yes. Uh, yeah, we, uh, that was a Dick Clark tour with a lot of different people on that. Bobby V was one of the headliners on that. And, uh, yeah, and um, I saw the I saw them go by. I was up there on that street, and uh, I guess a few, I went in to buy uh pair of socks or jeans, I can't remember, at Neiman Marcus, and 
couple of blocks later, they made that turn uh, into uh, Dealey Plaza, and uh, you know that everybody knows what happened. Mm-hmm. It was the worst in Dallas. It was really a terrible day, and uh, you know, the following morning, I, I looked out and I thought, did that really happen? I, I you know, when you wake up, I, I was dreaming, and I just woke up, and, and you know, and that I looked out and I saw a flag at half mast, and. I realized that, that that it did happen. Did you have to do a show that night? No, no they, the show was canceled, and uh, the um, we went on uh, uh, to Oklahoma, I think, for the, for the next couple of shows. And so they, we were off for that for the day that the concert was supposed to be, and then I think the following day was a travel day, and then we uh, were up in Oklahoma. You wrote a really powerful song about that day and the experience as well called Mail Order Gun. Well, you know what? That song isn't really about that. I got that idea for that title from um, when I saw about the uh, how they how he got the gun mm. to shoot President Kennedy. And it was a mail order rifle. And... Um, I just I thought that's that's kind of a weird thing a mail order gun, and uh, so I, and then I I wrote this song but it was totally about something else. Now, in 1964, you recorded an album and it wasn't a big hit for you, but uh, with country meets folk, well, you were way ahead of your time before anybody thought of bringing folk and country and rock music together, and then you continue to explore a lot of different genres throughout your career. Yeah, I, I was always I I heard music on the when I would travel on the road. I heard different radio stations uh, that you wouldn't hear in New York City. The uh, so I guess I was influenced by that, and I always I always liked the guitar sound on on the uh, country re- country records. And there was also a station down in um, Wheeling, West Virginia, WWVA. Oh, oh yeah, I used to we used to pick that, that up up night. here in Maine. We could get that on a skip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It was a powerful signal, and it got all around. It's uh, yeah, it's remarkable too. And we've we've talked about that here on the show before. That that was that was such a part of America that you don't get anymore. That as you travel the country, you'd hear these different sounds, uh, music that you wouldn't hear in other regions as you travel. And even even the guys on the radio, they had a, a distinctive accent based on where they were before everybody sounded the same and played the same thing. You're right. You're absolutely right. And like, and for instance, in Chicago, it was a lot of jazz stations, Chicago jazz. And, uh, you know, you get in there in, in that vicinity and they were just kind of local channels, local stations. And, uh, you know, and then there was the, the, the real 50,000 watt stations. And uh, I'm telling you, you know, all this cause you're in, <laughs> that's your business. But, they, you know, there was one up in Buffalo. There was one, uh, I think, in Chicago, one in Oklahoma City. And uh, then you had uh, Wolfman Jack down there in uh, right. in Tijuana or wherever that was. Well, and you grew up listening was, to uh, what Alan Freed, right? That's right. I listened to Alan Freed on WINS in New York. We're talking with Brian Highland here on Downtown. You had great success in the mid '60s too, uh, getting together with producer Snuff Garrett for uh, "The Joker Went Wild" and a number of other recordings. Yeah, the uh, that was the uh, sessions I did uh, 
with with uh, Snuff Garrett and Leon Russell mm. was the arranger on that on that the one that you mentioned, the Joker on Wild, and that was my first recording session in California, also. And uh, was it out there that you first met and began working with Del Shannon? I met Del Shannon in 1961 when uh, when his first record was out, uh, Runaway, and I think he had hats off to Larry. That was, uh, and uh, you know, I think they were back to back. And, um, yeah, and I met him then, and we did a tour in 1962, and sort of, you know, we were friends all all through the 60s, but, and didn't do a lot of shows with him, but at a certain point, I moved out to California, and I started writing songs with, with Dell. And uh, you guys had a number of songs that you written together, but uh, if I remember right, you wanted to hedge your bets and, and make sure you had something that the record company would like, and you, you took the Curtis Mayfield song, gypsy woman and man what a great record that turned out to be thank you thank you uh yeah that was uh just a at the last minute kind of thing you know of those those kind of things happen and uh we just were we were thinking well or, or if these other songs don't don't come out too good we can uh we'll have an oldie in there and it really wasn't that old at the time and it turned out to be the one now was it george tipton that did the string arrangements for that Correct. He did the string arrangements, and he was—he uh, did a really nice job because it. He, I think we just gave him a little hint. We said we want something that sounds kind of mysterious, and so he he arranged it in that way. It was nice. Well, you know, we play a lot of songs from the the '60s, the '70s, and the '80s here on the station, and and that's one of those songs. It's 52 years old now, but that song comes on. It sounds as fresh today as it did in 1970. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, the song itself is very visual, and you can put yourself right into that scene. It's uh, it's one of those songs, just has it. Now, like a lot of people, you had a resurgence uh, in the nineteen eighties. A part of it was when Albert West recorded some of your music and uh, got you to record with him, but also uh, as CDs came along and, and they started to package uh, some of the early hits of the rock and roll era, all of a sudden a new generation discovered your music. Yeah, you know, I think with with the uh, with CDs coming out, when, when everything became digital, they, they, you know, they transferred everything onto digital format and the, uh, and the music sounded good, sounded better. Uh, because all those old albums were getting kind of worn out <laughs> and the 45s that they would play at radio stations, then all of a sudden um, with CDs, you're actually hearing it like people heard it in the control room when they were, when it was actually recorded because there wasn't any, you know, going to transferring it onto a disc and a, a stamper and all the different processes that go with making a record from, uh, you know, all those, in between steps. We're talking with Brian Highland here on downtown. Uh, so Brian, I know you're out there still making music. What have you been up to lately? Well, actually, uh, Rich, I got married last year and uh, my wife is an author. She wrote a book called Kiss Me Swami, the education of a, the spiritual education of a beauty queen. Her name is Kathleen. And we got married last year. And also, I have a new record out, and it's uh, it's not a record, but it's a you know it's up on Spotify and Apple Music, and it's the song Mr. Blue, and uh, people can 
listen to it. It's also up on uh, on uh, YouTube. So, and, and it's a terrific arrangement. It's the old song from uh, what 1958 or 59, I think, from the Fleetwoods. But uh, you've got a great new arrangement of it. Thank you, Rich. Well, I just wanted to, uh, you know, it's been great talking to you, and uh, it's uh, it's a pleasure. Absolutely, and uh, people can go to your website, too, at brianhyland.com and uh, find out what you're doing, check out music and appearances, and learn all they need to know about Brian. Been a fan of your music for a long time, Brian. We appreciate you talking with us this afternoon and uh, wish you good health and success going forward. Thank you very much, and uh, uh, I'd just like to say it's been really great talking to you and uh, give my best to uh, Stephen King. Singer, songwriter Brian Highland on downtown. We'll take a break for a word from Cross Insurance and then come back with actor Richie Stevens next on downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Right there from 1970, million seller produced by Del Shannon, Gypsy Woman. It's downtown, the podcast. And up next, our conversation with actor Richie Stevens, who's had quite a career as an actor, but before all of that happened, a pretty rough ride that began in Ireland, made its way to Australia, San Francisco, before he began to clean up his act. It's all documented in a brand new book called The Gangster's Guide to Sobriety My Life in 12 Steps. Richie Stevens on downtown. Richie, thank you so much for being with us. Hello, Rich. How you doing? Thanks I'm, for uh, inviting me on. Well, it's wonderful to talk with you. I, I really enjoyed the book, and, and your story is a pretty powerful one. Let me let me see if I get this right. It took addiction, recovery, and then a broken back for you to become a successful actor. Exactly. It wasn't it wasn't uh, your usual backstory you hear for actors. It's been a fairly crazy journey. Well, it's quite a story of, of the book itself, too. How did you end up getting together with uh, John Alshulter and Dave Krinsky? Yeah, so I, I met John Alshulter and Dave Krinsky a couple of years ago. I was helping a friend produce a comedy he had been working on, so I reached out to all the top comedy guys uh, for that project. And that one wasn't a fit, but I, I uh, told John some of my experiences, you know, the I, before I got sober and became an actor, I had been involved in crime. You know, I was uh, I was a wild man when I was young, and uh, they thought it was really interesting. And uh, we partnered up together, and we we wrote the book together. Uh, I I basically sent them sent them a cold email. Didn't they didn't know me at all? It was it was kind of a strange <laughs> strange way of meeting them. <laughs> and now they're also working on developing a TV series based on the book. 
Yeah, yeah, that's the plan. We have a lot of people are interested in it at the moment, and we'll, we'll see where it ends up. It's probably yep. going to be a one-hour drama. What, was it was it John and Dave that suggested the idea of uh, structuring the book to focus on the twelve steps? Exactly. Yeah, originally I, I wrote down all my experience experiences from the age of about fifteen up to uh, twenty-nine. I got sober when I was twenty-eight, and but it was really long. A lot of stuff was in it. Um, we took it to a book agent, and she said, this is an incredible story, but I don't, I don't know how to sell it. So John came up with the idea of rewriting the book based on the 12 steps, because that's how I got sober, by going to 12-step meetings. So you have a bit of recovery in every chapter, and you have uh, a bit of insanity, too. Well, yeah, and uh, you, you start uh, with uh, with grabbing us right by the shirt collar in the opening of the book when the whole thing almost came to an end. You're there in a car with a gun in your hand, thinking about ending it all, and then made what turned out to be a very fateful phone call to a, a friend named Bernard. Exactly. Uh, in Ireland, we say Bernard, but right. say Bernard. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I, I came close to dying a lot of times before uh, I was lucky enough to get, get help. And this guy, you know, he, he saved my life. He took me to meetings and showed me another way of living. And that first part of your life uh, really started as a young man running the streets of Cavan. I, I, I laughed in reading the book because uh, we had a big Irish population here in Bangor uh, uh, back in the day. And then the toughest area of town was known as the Half Acre, just as it was in Cavan. <laughs> That's funny. I haven't heard of any other Half Acres. Yeah, up in Cavan, we call the, the bad area the Half Acre. And you took your first drink at 15. That that changed your life in a whole lot of ways. What was it about that that, that, that made you want more? Exactly. Well, you know, when I was young, I was I was very shy and, and didn't have a lot of self-confidence. I used to get pushed around at school. You know, I was kind of scared of people. And I, I went to a concert one time, uh, one of those big festival concerts, and there was a bunch of bands like uh, Beastie Boys and Garbage these kind of people. It was in the mid-90s. I was going back on the bus, and this girl, she offered me a drink of uh, drink of beer. And I, I had never tried drinking before, and once I took that drink, it, it made me feel completely different. It was like, made me into a different person. I didn't care about what anybody thought about me. I didn't have any fear. It was, uh, it was just something that I had been looking for that I didn't know I was looking for. And the problem was I wanted to do it all the time, and that I quickly, quickly became a, a big-time boozer, and one thing led to another, and that's 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 where it all started. It did something for me that, that uh, I had never experienced before. We're I talking normal people, when, like normal people. I think when they take a drink, it's a little bit of fun, but when when an alcoholic takes a drink, it's uh, it's something special, you know. We're talking with Richie Stevens here on Downtown. How did you end up then in San Francisco, building houses by day? And selling cocaine and Viagra by night. Well, it wasn't a, it wasn't a straight line. I I, uh, I I caused some trouble back home, and uh, I started to think that maybe Ireland might be the problem. Maybe if I get out of Ireland, uh, things will be different. And uh, I I got married really young to an American girl who lived in San Francisco, and that's how I ended up there. But the problems came with me to America, the same as they were in Ireland. And, I even went to Australia at one point. I thought maybe America was the problem, and I went to Australia, but I had problems in Australia, too. <laughs> I was the problem. 
Well, then you begin the 12 steps. And, and, and let's start with that belief in a higher power that's essential. Was, was that a tough one for you? Oh, absolutely. I was a complete atheist when, when, when I got sober. and uh, I had been raised Catholic. You know, I was an altar boy when I was young, and I went to Catholic school, and my mother was a devout Catholic. But by the time I came, came to sobriety, I didn't believe that there could be any kind of a God or anything like that. So so I was dead against it at the start. I, I, uh, I thought these meetings were some kind of a cult or a religion, and it really scared me. I nearly didn't come back. I didn't want to become a Catholic again. <laughs> what did you learn about yourself when you had to do what's called a moral inventory? Well, basically, um, part of getting sober is doing this moral inventory. You kind of write down a list of all the people, places, and things that you're mad at. And, uh, you know, I had a lot of people, places, and things that I was mad at. I was full of resentment. And I had never really looked to see what my part is, was in a lot of it. You know, I, I kind of thought I was a nice guy. Maybe I was a victim. But uh, I, I I worked with my sponsor, and he, he helped me get through it. And, you know, for example, I had a grudge against this guy, Ollie. He was, um, back in the day, I used to sell drugs, and he was one of my employees, and he got caught by the cops, and then he set me up with the cops. So Ollie was the top of my list, you know. And uh, my sponsor said, uh, who, who are you angry at? I said, I'm angry at Ollie. Why are you angry at him? I said, because uh, he snitched on me to the cops. He says, what was your part in it? I said, I didn't have a part in it. I was a stand-up guy. I never snitched on anybody. And uh, he <laughs> said to me, he says, weren't you selling drugs? I said, yeah. He says, well, aren't drugs illegal? I said, yeah. He says, well, if you weren't selling drugs, he wouldn't have told on you. <laughs> and that, that had never occurred to me. I was, I was, uh, I was kind of uh, coming out of the insanity at that point, you know. How difficult was to to accept that about yourself and to be able to admit that this is what I am? Well, it, it, it was difficult in some ways. So, so uh, if you if you admit that you have a problem with the booze and the drugs, the first thing is admitting you're powerless is number one. And number two is admitting your life is unmanageable. I kind of knew I was powerless from the beginning. When I was a kid and I started drinking them beers, I was like, this is the best thing ever. I want to do it all the time and I don't care what happens. I kind of knew I was powerless over it for, from the beginning, but I didn't admit that my life was unmanageable until the very end. You know, to an outsider looking at where my life was going, it was obvious that somebody who wants to end their life has an unmanageable life, you know. So uh, finally, at the very end, after multiple suicide attempts and all kinds of chaos within my my life, I was finally able to admit this. I don't know how to live my life, and I need to I need to find out a different way to behave. And, and as you write, one of the hardest part is that drugs are fun. <laughs> you said you could be for a guy who grew up shy. You could be very entertaining under the influence. Apparently so, you know. Uh, um, but obviously, if, if they weren't fun, people wouldn't be doing them. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, the thing is, you know, the thing is, I I would never preach to anybody because it would be completely hypocritical of me to criticize other people for doing it. You know, my story isn't about preaching to people. My story is just about what happened to me. 
And this is how I got out of it, you know. And, and there's a difference between someone who can casually take a few drinks and nothing happens, they don't get arrested, they don't end up in fights, they don't end up in the hospital. A normal person, that doesn't that doesn't happen to them. But if you have a problem with the sauce, then you see all these kind of uh, consequences. And that, that was my story. And you write that getting sober is a very confusing time. Can you explain that? It definitely is because uh, if you're if you're a boozer and a, a drug taker, uh, you kind of it's kind of how you deal with everything in your life. Like for example, if you're happy, you go for a few scoops to celebrate. If you're sad, you go you go for a few scoops to uh, to drown your sorrows. Or if you're upset about something, or you know, even if you're just bored. For me, drinking and, and using was about. Uh, Every time I had a feeling, <laughs> I needed to, mm. I needed to drink something or snort something or smoke something. So when a person gets sober, that you're taking away the person's medicine. Like that was my medicine for how I lived my life, and and then and I had to figure out how to do everything um, without drinking. You know, when when I first first got sober, my 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 buddy Bernard, uh, he, he says he says we're gonna go we're gonna go for coffee. <laughs> what do you mean we're going to go for coffee? Like, if we're going to go to the coffee shop, we're going to have a, have a coffee. Well, I said, what are we going to do there? He says, we're going to talk and drink coffee. And that was completely alien to me. I, I was 28 years of age at that point, and I, I don't think I had ever sat in a coffee shop and had a coffee with someone. Like, for me, I, I would go for a beer, like, because those kind of social situations used to make me nervous and anxious, so... Even something as simple as that, going for a cup of coffee, made me, made me feel weird. So, so it, it was definitely a big change, taking away the medicine I was used to getting and, and uh, figuring out how to do things like a normal person. One of the last steps in, in the process of recovery is making amends. Did you find that difficult? Oh, absolutely, because I was a criminal and, and I hadn't been caught for most of the things that I had done. So... Uh, I was worried about that one. I didn't want to go to jail. And, uh, yeah, we had some, some, some very difficult ones for sure. You know, like one of the things was I, I robbed a, a, a valuable painting one time. I had got away with it. And as soon as I robbed it, I mailed it back to some friends in Ireland for some safekeeping. We got to this immense step, and I had this valuable painting. It was worth a fortune. And I knew I couldn't keep it because... Uh, didn't belong to me, and part of getting sober was uh, making right the things he had done wrong. So I got it, I got it sent back to me from Ireland, and I had to try and figure out a way of giving it back without going to jail, without getting caught. I couldn't just go, oh, sorry, sorry, stole this, please don't arrest me, you know. <laughs> so I, I asked my sponsor, and, and he didn't know how to do it, and he asked his sponsor, and his sponsor didn't know either, but. The good thing, if you're sober, you meet all kinds of people in, in the room for sobriety. You meet doctors, I mean, you can meet uh, lawyers and cops and all kinds of people. So I talked to all, all, all sorts of people to try and figure out how to how to give this painting back. And eventually we figured it out. And, and I, I did the right thing. I gave it back. And it was the most valuable thing I ever owned, but it felt like a million bucks getting rid of I'll tell you that. So uh, do, you, do you think that you'll be helping people by sharing your story that others can see that there, there's a way out of addiction? Yeah, that's the whole idea of the book, uh, Rich. You know, I kept it quiet for a long time. Like, I'm not proud of the things I have done, but it's, it's, 
part of my my story and um like if if people if people do have have a problem with with uh, either drinking or, or substances or whatever they can see that there there is a solution and you know if you think you're bad look at how bad I was <laughs> you know <laughs> so uh, so yeah and you know even even if you don't have a problem if you like a good story or if you have a dark sense of humor like I do um, you might enjoy it too. I, I would say it's not it's not it's not for young kids or anything like that. It's, uh, fairly explicit. Oh yes, <laughs> to, to somebody very young, there's lots of cussing and, and uh, craziness in it. But if you enjoy a good story and give a dark sense of humor, I think you'll enjoy it. Yeah, it's a powerful book and, and at times very very funny as well. Now you've played you have played in your acting career people on both sides of the law. What do you think? What do you think producers saw in you and directors that uh, uh, made them think you could understand that world? Well, I think I have that look, you know, because because of my past life. I think it telegraphs uh, the very first role I got uh, as an actor was um, where I was tied to a chair and getting beaten to a pulp um, by some gangsters. And the director who picked me for that, Weston, he, uh, he, he didn't know about my past, but he just thought that I had that look. And I didn't want to scare him, so I didn't didn't tell him anything about it. I still have bite marks on my nose from a time when people came into my house and held me down and beat me to a pulp and bit my face, and, you know. And, uh, so I, I think I, I think I, I obviously have that look, and uh, so so that, that's what they usually hire me for, either bad guy or. Sometimes I'll play the cop who arrests the, the, the lead. So even though I'm a cop, I'm probably kind of a bad cop. And any of your listeners who, who are listening and don't know who I am, usually I don't play Irish roles. I, I do all the accents. So I play Americans or Russians or Germans. So if you don't recognize if you don't don't recognize my voice, if you take a look at my my uh, IMDb, you'll, you'll see, see the kind of roles I've been in. And part of that is your versatility. Where well, you speak what five, six languages? Yeah, yeah, I speak Irish, English, a little bit of French, German, a little Spanish, and a little Russian. But I don't really get to use the languages too much. But it, but it, I kind of I'm pretty good at the accents. I've always always been able to do different accents, so that that comes in handy because there's not a huge demand for Irish guys in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we're so happy to see that you're on the other side of the challenges you faced. Uh, you love your work as an actor, and the book is an absolutely terrific read. It's entitled The Gangster's Guide to Sobriety, My Life in 12 Steps. Uh, Richie, great to talk with you. Thank you so much for sharing your story, and we look forward to seeing this on the screen at some time in the future. Thank you so much, Rich. It was lovely talking to you, and hope everybody has a great day. Carrie, could you tell that uh, Richie was from Ireland in our conversation? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so funny that he ends up not playing Irish right. roles very often. Well, but because he's so good with accents, yeah, I think a amazing. lot of people might think he's Russian, mm. and because he's done that on uh, on a couple of shows. But uh, yeah, he's uh, an interesting guy. The book is. It's pretty powerful, but also funny as well. The Gangster's Guide to Sobriety. Our thanks to Richie Stevens and thanks to Brian Hyland for visiting with us this week on Downtown the Podcast. And of course, thanks to you. We remind you, Downtown is brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. See you next time right here on Downtown.